0: Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and today we are appropriately on Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to this passage, so let's just go ahead and take up reading it. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to Him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son. We give you thanks that he took on flesh for us and our salvation, and we give you thanks for the richness of passages like this when they explain the meaning and what was happening at his birth. Lord, we pray for this time together that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that your spirit would be amongst us together, that we might respond in faith and belief and love to what you have done for us and your son. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. All right. uh, In verse one, Luke tells us that in those days—that is, the same time period of Zachariah, Elizabeth, and Mary—that we've been reading about in chapter one—a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That is Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's nephew and adopted heir, uh, who was at that time the most powerful man in the world. And that decree was that the world, that is, as they would think of it, the Roman Empire should be registered. So this was a census for the purpose of taxation to create revenue for Rome. And it wasn't without controversy. So for example, you could see it mentioned in, in uh, really in passing in Acts chapter six about Judas the Galilean who uh, fancied himself as a Messiah at about this, this time. And started a revolt over this census and the taxation for, from Rome. So, this was a very notable time in the history of Israel. And verse, tell, verse 2 tells us that this was the first registration when, or really as, as many scholars think the English should read, before uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so, Subjugated people like uh, the Jews were required to go to their respective hometowns in order to be registered and in turn be taxed. So you can understand why people would not be real happy about that. So Luke is giving us essentially the time period, but more so I, I think he is contrasting two different kings in this passage, two different kings. For example, the language the angel of the Lord used to announce Jesus's birth was known as the gospel. But the gospel, the good news about a coming king was most commonly used with the Caesars before it was ever used with Jesus. It was the announcement of a king who was ruling over all things and to the world. And this is still true today. Political power is the ultimate power. That's how the world sees things. And uh, the way people saw things then was that Caesar was ultimate. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's how he was described. Caesar Augustus, in fact, claimed to be the son of God. Case in point, after Julius Caesar's assassination, Augustus had declared his uncle, Julius, a god, complete with the creation of his own temple and priesthood dedicated to his worship in Rome. And so during the state-sanctioned game, sometimes later, uh, celebrating Julius Caesar's life, and, and never you mind the weirdness <laughs> that the same senate that assassinated him for being a tyrant also declared him a god and approved games in his honor. No joke, a comet appeared over the course of several days of those games which Augustus claimed was Julius Caesar ascending into the heavens as a god. So it was easy for Augustus as Julius Caesar's nephew and adopted son and heir to call himself then the Son of God, and that he alone had brought peace and justice to the world, never you mind that the peace he brought came through incredibly exacting and brutal force. Of course, Luke's readers knew this about Caesar, and some of them had probably even used coins that showed Augustus's image on one side of the coin and on the other, Caesar's star. And yet, all the Gospels are adamant that men like Caesar, not unlike Pharaoh in the book of Exodus or Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, are but men, mere men, and only have as much power and authority as God allows them to have. But just consider, at the time of their writings, both Matthew and Luke give time references by way of the Roman Empire. And this happens with the Old Testament too, with Israel's place within the Assyrian and then the Babylonian and then the Persian empires. But now, in our day, and it's been this way for a while, the world, whether it bends the knee or not to Jesus, follows a calendar and dating based on His birth. On His birth. And those same ancient empires are now dated. They find their place in history according to, to him and by his light and his life. So Joseph and Mary made the journey from Mary's hometown, Nazareth, to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem, in order to be registered among his people who were the descendants of David. Now, as an aside, it's worth noting that this trip echoes the trip made by Jacob and Rachel when she was pregnant with Benjamin in Genesis 35. In that passage, God had just renamed Jacob Israel and He had just re-upped His commitment to the covenant He had made with Abraham because the covenant with Abraham was always for him and his children. And in turn, God promised that kings would come from Jacob. So on the way to Bethlehem, Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin, never reaching the place. But here, here... Mary arrives in Bethlehem in what had become by this point the city of David, the city of the great king. And she gave birth to the king that had been promised to Jacob. So the popular impression then that, that Joseph and Mary uh, were kind of on this, this, this desperate flight, uh, that they were poor and alone and Bethlehem itself was overcrowded because of the census. So. In turn, there was no place for them anywhere, so much so that they were rejected by an innkeeper and were forced into a barn comes from a misreading of our passage. It's a misunderstanding of what verses 6 and 7 actually have in mind. By today's standards, Mary and Joseph, of course, were poor. And of course, by today's standards, virtually everyone in the Bible was poor. So Luke's point is not so much that that they they were poor, but rather that they were ordinary. In comparison to Caesar, they were incredibly ordinary Jews living under Roman rule. The decrees of Caesar may temporarily have affected the world, and they did, but the real world-shaking power was actually arriving on the scene in Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, not merely because it was his ancestral home, there's, there's no historical evidence that the Romans required people to return to ancestral areas for a census. I mean, David had lived roughly a thousand years before Joseph, but because they go there, that's where Joseph was actually from, and he had family there, and chances are good that the census was the impetus Joseph needed to go back home anyway. I mean, culturally, the most common thing at that time for a newly married couple to do was to live close to the husband's family because of inherited property and work and and all kinds of benefits that came with being a male at that time. That Joseph and Mary wound up long-term in Nazareth was because they were forced to flee to Egypt not long after Jesus' birth because of the threat uh, to Jesus from King Herod and even after Herod's death they were warned in a dream not to go back to Bethlehem so they took up with Mary's people in Nazareth in the region of Galilee. So Luke does not tell us how long they were in Bethlehem typically a census like that would actually take years to complete not a couple of days or even a month so the popular idea that Bethlehem was full to busting is most likely false. But while they were there, presumably living with his family, it came time for Mary to give birth. And the misunderstanding that that has given rise to uh, popular nativity scenes comes from that last phrase of verse 7. Where it says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now hopefully whatever Bible uh, you're using has a footnote on that word inn that gives the option or guest room. And that that word inn really is... uh, makes it in, into your, your English translations, really is a holdover from the King's James Version, which is, what, 400 years ago. And the term that would typically be used for in, in the Greek, is not used here. Rather, it's the word that typically means something like a hospitality room on a house, like what we see Jesus and the disciples using during the Last Supper, same word. So the typical home of this time uh, was was a large elevated one room dwelling. So really just a one room home where everyone in the family slept together in the same room. And these houses often included an added guest room for guests who in turn slept in that hospitality room. So sometimes that room was tacked on to the back of a house and sometimes it was on the roof, uh, a floor above, like again, what we see with the upper room in the last supper with Jesus and his disciples. Now that main room or floor was elevated uh, from ground level. So imagine ground level, and it was up uh, a little bit off the, the, off the ground. And uh, there was a lower level there for animals to be brought in at night that was accessible uh, by the main room. So imagine here you have the main, and right below that maybe stairs going down the place where uh, the animals would be. And in that, that lower level, it included uh, you know, basically stalls and whatnot, it couldn't have been all that big. But in that main room that was accessible to it, you would have feeding troughs that were hollowed out in the floor, what the text says are mangers that were accessible to the animals in the room from the main floor below it. So they could just stick their head up over and eat so Mary and Joseph then weren't struggling to find a space they weren't looking for rooms in a hotel and they weren't forced to use a stable out back Jesus was not born in a barn. he just wasn't so it would have been unthinkable at that time for example for Joseph and Mary to have no place to go in his hometown and even if he had been a total stranger there this was not Sodom and Gomorrah which of course was infamous for its inhospitality. There would have been a place for them no matter how uncomfortable it would have made their hosts. And you can still see that in the Middle East to this day. In fact, you can still see this same design on homes in the Middle East to this day. Besides, no Jewish woman would have allowed for a teenage mother with her first pregnancy, no matter who she is or what she had done, to give birth by herself in a stable. So what we should see is Mary giving birth among Joseph's family, not in the guest room because it wasn't big enough, but in the main room of the house, and in turn, Jesus was wrapped up and laid in the feeding trough in that same room. And we may be weirded out by the hygiene of the times or the utter lack of privacy, so introverts, you would have just struggled uh, in this, this culture. But this was perfectly normal to them. So as much as I hate to say it, and I promise I'm not trying to destroy, (laughs) I did not enter into this sermon trying to destroy uh, popular pictures, your nativity scenes are probably wrong. Uh, Joseph and Mary were not alone, and chances are the women sent Joseph out of the main room along with all the other men, and in turn, Jesus was born in the normal human way, which meant he cried, and he had to be cleaned, and he was nursed. Sorry, his face was not radiant uh, and he was not silent and he was laid in a spot that would have made logical sense to the people at that time. Now as just one more aside, since I'm taken down away in the manger and silent night, nativity scenes and everything else, did Mary know? She did. So again, the point Luke is making is not so much that, that Joseph and Mary were poor refugees whose child was a born. You know, on the fly in a barn complete with the lowing of cows, but that the King of Kings came to his people not like the heir of Caesar, but in the ordinary Jewish way. The ordinary Jewish way in a small, out of the way town in Judea that was once the hometown of Israel's greatest king, David, in fulfillment of Scripture. So in verses eight and nine, we read that in the same region, that is Bethlehem of Judea, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So, as we've mentioned in every sermon in this series thus far, Luke wants us to connect what's happening with Jesus with what was promised to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets, so that. This moment happened in Bethlehem among shepherds. That's not random and it's not precious or cute. It's important. Consider what Micah says in chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Uh, This is the promise of the coming Messiah, who is a world ruler. A coming king in the same pattern of David who would rule his people like the shepherd leaders who had come before him, shepherds like Abraham, Moses, and David. And this coming shepherd ruler would be born in the same backwater town as a shepherd among shepherds. And a similar promise is given in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 34, 23 through 24, excuse me. It says, and I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken." So God's chosen ruler is of the same pattern of the patriarchs, not the pattern of the world's kings. He would shepherd his people, not abuse them. He would not exploit them or tax them, no. The shepherd would feed them and give them life and true peace, though not in the ways that they were expecting. That, that God proclaims this king, this world ruler among shepherds is important too. It has been common among scholars, and I, I've, I've said this in the past too, and I was wrong. It's it's been common to read the detail about shepherds as God revealing himself among the poor and marginal of Israelite society. But that's not right. That's not right. Shepherds weren't on the fringes of Jewish society, and they certainly weren't marginalized. No, shepherds are key figures in the Old Testament, and Israel being a shepherding people, which is what they were, is, for example, what separated them from the Egyptians. The Egyptians in Egypt hated them because they were shepherding people. And of course, David famously likens God himself to a shepherd in Psalm 23. Jesus is described in the gospels in the book of Revelation as both the good shepherd and the lamb who was slain. So it makes zero sense to see shepherds as outcasts in Luke 2, and it is fitting that God would proclaim the birth of the great shepherd to one of his own. Who else would recognize a shepherd but shepherds? The reason people in Luke chapter 2 are surprised and wonder about the shepherd's message is not because they were shepherds, but because they claim to have seen the Messiah, which was a pretty bold claim. As Alistair Roberts argues, this moment in Luke has direct ties to Moses, another shepherd leader of God's people in the burning bush of Exodus 3. Next is 3, if you'll remember, Moses, uh, Moses is first described as a shepherd, and while shepherding his flock on Mount Horeb, presumably at night, he encounters the angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And it's not merely a fire. It's the glory of God. It's the same glory seen in the pillar of fire that led Israel in the wilderness and in turn that settled upon Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and then later with the temple. And with the burning bush like what we see in Luke 2, God's glory, His presence was manifested. It was mediated through an angel. So it is not merely that the angel we see here in Luke was radiant, though I'm sure He was. Every time you see an angel uh, throughout the Old Testament, people usually try and worship them because they're spectacular. So it's not merely that this angel was radiant. No, this angel brought the glory of God, literally bringing God's presence from heaven to earth. And like with Exodus 3, the angel tells the shepherds here in Luke 2 that the long-awaited salvation is at hand. And on this very night in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. So just as... God redeemed Israel through a redeemer in the shepherd leader of Moses. So now God is doing something even greater through another shepherd in Bethlehem. Notice that the angel pairs the words Christ and the Lord. So Christ and Messiah, they mean the same thing. Once a Greek term, once a, a Hebrew term, they mean the same thing, which means the anointed one. Like David, this person has been set apart, literally anointed with oil, which was a symbol and sign of the giving of the Spirit, that God was with them. This is why at Jesus' baptism, he's not anointed with oil, he's anointed with the actual Spirit. to be, And they're set apart to be the king and savior of God's people. But unlike David, or really any other figure in the Old Testament, he is not merely a Lord, he is the Lord. And that doesn't merely point to kingship, though it does. It points to His divinity. It is God Himself through this Messiah and King who is coming to fight for His people. So like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who is a human sent by God from heaven who conquers all of Israel's enemies and in turn receives worship and honor alongside the Ancient of Days, that is Yahweh Elohim, so too this Savior, this Messiah and King is God. So for good reason, Jesus often referred to Himself as the Son of Man of Daniel 7. So like with Moses, a sign was given to these shepherds to confirm that all of this is true. With Moses, that sign was the promised defeat of Egypt in spectacular fashion and the return of those people, Israel, to the very same mountain where Moses was experiencing God's glory and presence through that burning bush. The sign given to these shepherds, like the sign given to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, is very different. It's humble. It's the humble sign of a child born of a virgin and wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now the details of swaddling clothes and lying in a manger uh, point back to what we heard in those prophecies in Ezekiel and Micah. The Messiah is a shepherd, a human and divine prince who will feed his people, but not in the way most people expected him to. The shepherd is also the lamb who was slain, given as food for his people so that they will never hunger or thirst again. That is all throughout the gospels of what Jesus does for his people. Just think of the feeding of the 5,000, for example. And it's a powerful metaphor of our union with Christ and something we remember and celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. So, at his birth, Luke has already anticipated his death and what his death does for his people. Luke tells us, in fact, in chapter 23 that after his crucifixion, Jesus was taken by Joseph of Arimathea. He was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. The language is almost identical. So the child laying in the manger is the great shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep in his death. Well, after proclaiming the gospel to the shepherds, the angel of the Lord is joined by a multitude of angels who break forth into song. Glory, glory to God in the highest, or as we sing it in Latin with uh, angels we have heard on high, Gloria in excelsis Deo, that's what that means. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So like Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah, these angels can't help but break into song and praise over the goodness of God and what he has done for his people. And it is remarkable. No gods do this. Only our God does this, sending forth his Son like this. And the last line of their song uh, that the angels sing is important. God brings peace through His Messiah to whoever wants it, to whoever desires His favor. And as the Gospels show, not everyone in Israel wanted it. Peace on earth, of course, does not mean that our lives will be marked by peaceful, easy feelings. Thank you, Eagles. No, our lives and our circumstances might get much harder or much worse, as Mary and Joseph would soon find out. No, what it means is that we have life with God, both in this life and the life to come, no matter what. And there is a peace that surpasses all understanding, even in the face of real suffering. Well, the passage ends with a series of responses. So, for example, the shepherds believed what they heard from the angels and acted on it by going to see the sign. And once they saw Jesus, they proclaimed what they had seen to whoever would listen, and people marveled at it. That's the pattern of the Gospel, by the way. We come to faith by hearing, just as the shepherds heard the pronouncement of the Gospel, and in turn, by believing it. It is a privilege, you see, to enjoy God's favor. And as the angels show, it is a privilege to worship God. It is a privilege to be called to a a different life, and it is a life that is far more satisfying than what the world has on on offer, even as it is oftentimes much harder and much more difficult. We also see that Mary took in these moments and she pondered them. She thought about them. She came back to them over and over again. It's why she is one of the greatest witnesses in the Old Testament to Jesus' life. I think we should do that, too. We should take these moments throughout our life, these times in the Word, these times with God's people, these times that we experience... Throughout our lives, and we should ponder them and what they mean and what God has been doing in our lives, whether it's the beautiful times or the hard times or, or everything in between. So, you know, amidst, amidst the celebrations we have today, the celebrations or the heartache or the feasting or the loneliness or the cheer or the apathy or the disappointment. You can have all of those, by the way, on the same day. And here in this room, I have no doubt, there is a range of emotions being felt, a range of thoughts about what this day means to you. Amidst that, know that your God is with you. Come back to that. Ponder that. You know, as evangelicals are fond of saying, he is the reason for the season. But what is that reason? It's not just a slogan. What is that reason? You see, God's character is not like Caesar's. It's just not. He's a shepherd. He comforts. He is not brutally oppressive. He delights to patiently work things out through the weak things of this world, things like shepherds and backwater towns. And he loves to show grace and mercy to broken home-alone-type families, imperfect people, and to reveal himself in out-of-the-way towns like, well, like ours, like Greenville. His love is as much for you as it was for Mary and Joseph, and he will not take it away from you. So let us pray as we end our time together with our God this morning. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you, no God who patiently over time works out salvation for countless billions of people. We thank you for the grace that you have shown to these characters in the Bible because it is the same character of grace you have shown to us. On this Christmas morning, I know there is indeed a, a range of emotions being felt today. I thank you for this group of people. I pray your blessings on them. I pray that even in just some small way, they would be able to see how much you love them and delight in them. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.